Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. A few years ago, the Me Too movement went viral when women used social media to acknowledge they had experienced sexual harassment or assault. And they called for changes, starting in the workplace. But listen to disgraced New York Governor Andrew Cuomo on Tuesday describe his behavior. These comments were part of Cuomo's resignation announcement after the New York Attorney General investigated and concluded he had harassed 11 women. I do hug and kiss people casually, women and men. I have done it all my life. It's who I've been since I can remember. In my mind, I've never crossed the line with anyone. But I didn't realize the extent to which the line has been redrawn. One person shared on Twitter, I guess Cuomo skipped the annual sexual harassment training required for all New York State employees. And that brings us to our show today. Since 2019, Connecticut law requires most employers to provide sexual harassment prevention training. But do these programs really work? Do they change workplace culture? Today, where we live, we hear from two guests who know the law and what research shows about these programs and their effectiveness. And we want to hear from you, too. Have you undergone mandatory sexual harassment prevention training? Do you think they've helped your workplace? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. My first guest is on Zoom, Marsha McCormick. She's an employment law professor at St. Louis University. Marsha, welcome to our show. Thanks. Uh, I'm excited to be here. Now, before we dig in, I just wanted to get your reaction when you heard Andrew Cuomo's comments on Tuesday. Um, So his reaction is very similar um, to the reactions of a lot of, and usually it's men, um, who are um, accused of having engaged in uh, harassing behavior. Um, and it's not just sex harassment. It's also harassment on other uh, protected classes. But the the general, um, you know, defense is, well, the rules have changed. Um, this uh, something is new and I didn't really intend for my actions to be taken the wrong way, but they were. And it's because the rules have changed. And so that sort of, you know, deflects any responsibility, um, but also is probably not accurate um, in terms of what the rules are and what they've been for quite a long time. That's right. We're going to be talking about the federal and state laws that are in place uh, to prevent this kind of behavior from happening. So let's let's start there, Marsha. When did we start to really see uh, companies and other workplaces start to offer sexual harassment prevention training? Well, the, the training actually has been a law around for a pretty long time, um, certainly since uh, at least the mid 80s um, in some form at big companies. 
um, and maybe even for some of them in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, but the training really picked up speed um, in the late 90s when the Supreme Court issued a couple of decisions about um, why training might help employers not be liable for harassment claims brought by their employees. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, we heard from Hillary who tweeted, appreciative that you're doing this segment when we individualize the problem when it's a structural issue, we'll never eliminate this behavior. Plus, the approach is legalistic versus ethical and moral. She goes on to say, it's a cover your rear for the institution or business that has no intention of changing. How do you respond to that? Well, I think that's that's right. And uh, in fact, the most effective um, ways to prevent harassment are really structural. Um, they're, it's about uh, having lots of women in the workforce and women in core leadership positions. Um, and those kinds of structural things uh, really do make a difference in the culture and make harassment less likely um, on the basis of sex. Um, and similar things happen for race when we have uh, a more diversity in race and leadership positions. Um, but I do want to sort of push back a tiny bit on the moral versus legalistic. And I'm not just doing that because I'm a lawyer. I totally <laughs> agree that the training is really legalistic in ways that are not productive. Um, but one of the challenges in viewing anti-discrimination as a moral issue is that then that um, allows for um, uh, sort of a two sides debate. Um, in, uh, and generally speaking, they're has been a long debate actually about anti-discrimination as a moral issue. Um, and many activists have uh, resisted a moral framing in large part because that means that there aren't remedies um, if it's simply a moral issue. We want to hear from you, especially we know the Me Too movement really took off in 2017, and yet we're still seeing both high-profile cases and other uh, small cases around the country when we think about um, sexual harassment and assault, uh, whether it's in the workplace, in the military, on college campuses. And so uh, when we hear Andrew Cuomo say that he didn't realize the lines have been redrawn. I mean, come on. <laughs> Unless he's been living under a rock, it's, it's, it's been pretty obvious. But we want to hear from you if you've had to do these training, these prevention trainings at your workplace. Uh, do you think that they've made a difference in your, uh, on your job or you know, in the place that you work? You can join us, 888-720-9677. Again, that's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, Marsha, you mentioned... Uh, that you know these programs have been around uh, for starting in the late seventies and eighties, and so what were some of the cases that um, were heard that prompted companies to respond? Well, there were some um, very early cases uh, in the circuit courts, um, first involving race-based harassment, um, uh, and then uh, involving sex harassment, and and one of the first um, Supreme Court cases to consider the issue is a case called Meritor. Um, uh, Meritor Bank versus Vinson. And that in that case, the Supreme Court recognized that a, an abusive environment is itself uh, discriminatory and uh, an environment where a supervisor requires um, subordinates to uh, engage in sexual activity with them or continues to ask them um, even if there's no economic effect, um, that environment alone is discriminatory. 
Um, and in that case, the court left open the question of when it is exactly that employer an employer was going to be liable for that supervisor's conduct. Because um, one of the sort of things that people don't realize maybe about anti-discrimination law is that it's not the person who discriminates under at least federal law who ends up um, being the defendant in these cases and having to pay damages and things like that. It's the employer who employs the person who engages in the conduct. Mm. And we'll be talking uh, more about uh, Connecticut law coming up. We'll be hearing from an attorney that's based in our state. Uh, And so before COVID, of course, uh, we think about these workshops or trainings that took place in person. And so as they've developed and has ta- as time has gone on, I mean, who are the people that are in workplaces telling employees, telling leadership, you know, these are the laws and this is why you need to follow them? And what, have the, what do these trainings look like? So the, the trainings um, have gotten better, um, but I'll go with sort of the archetypal, not so great trainings. Um, and that those are usually uh, spearheaded by HR professionals, maybe um, with uh, general counsel or outside counsel. And in fact, uh, management side uh, firms uh, have often, or in the past at least, have marketed their um, services for training for um, their employer clients. Um, And usually the training involves a description of the law um, and then uh, maybe some role playing or scenarios um, uh, that display some kind of harassing behavior. And then maybe an explanation of why that might uh, violate the law or at least violate the employer's policy. Um, And they're usually uh, they're supposed to be kind of interactive, but um, they're. the extent of their interaction is usually question and answer or um, occasionally where people are asked to actually role play. That must be uncomfortable. (laughs) Oh my gosh, super uncomfortable. So one of the things that I do with my students, I use Google image searches a lot, and this isn't exactly like the training, but, um, and my students have done this at their workplaces too, but I ask them to look for a picture of, uh, with the search terms of, you know, sexual harassment and the stock photos that come back all look really uncomfortable. Usually they're a young woman sitting at a desk with a clearly masculine hand on her shoulder and her sort of cringing away or, you know, the guy standing too close or something like that. Um, and the pictures themselves are kind of cringeworthy. Um, and so are the role-playing actions often. Now, I mentioned uh, before COVID, you know, we'd be sitting in a room uh, learning about the law, these trainings, uh, and now uh, there are several companies out there that provide these online modules, and they sound something like this. The goal of this course is to give you the skills to be a positive influence in the workplace. We will be taking a close look at issues like harassment, discrimination, and retaliation, which affect people in organizations everywhere. Marcia, is it any wonder for these online modules that people may not really be paying attention or kind of tune out? Yeah, it's pretty common because that sounds really legalistic. Um, Although I'll tell you that that is a lot better viewing from the sense that um, at least it's looking at discrimination in this in a way is a cultural thing and all of those kinds of discrimination together. It's better than simply treating harassment alone. 
Again, you're hearing Marsha McCormick here on Where We Live. She's an employment law professor at St. Louis University. As we talk more about uh, efforts in place in workplaces uh, for many years, uh, especially after the Me Too movement, has been heightened the awareness of sexual harassment prevention training at workplaces. We want to hear from you if you've done these trainings, if you feel like you've learned something, or if it has made any impact on your workplace culture, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, uh, Marsha, you mentioned not just uh, focusing on laws on, on harassment, but thinking about the different classes of, of, of protection. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, so harassment is just another kind of discrimination. So um, any any protection that exists for a particular identity characteristic um, or protected conduct, um, like filing a charge or um, asserting your rights in the workplace, any one of those can form the basis of, um, of well, a harassment claim. Um, and so you can have uh, uh, harassment on the basis of sex, race, color, national origin, religion, age, disability status. Um, uh, all of those are covered by federal law. Um, and, uh, and the states have mostly interpreted their anti-discrimination laws the same way. When we uh, talk about discomfort when people have to go through these trainings, you know, what does the evidence show, research into the, these programs about, you know, how it impacts behaviors? Um, so traditional uh, anti-harassment training, especially the legalistic kind, especially the kind that focuses on um, uh, on sexual harassment uh, itself uh, or alone, um, it, there's no evidence that it is effective. And in fact, it can be counterproductive. Um, one of the things that can happen is that by talking about stereotypes, for example, that can prime stereotypes um, in the minds of the people participating in the training and make it more likely after the training that they will act on the basis of those stereotypes. Um, It can also make supervisors afraid um, and other employees too afraid of accidentally in sort of Governor Cuomo's terms harassing someone um, and so reducing their interactions with people who are different from them. And so for example you might think of um, a few years ago uh, one of the Uh, terms in the news was the Pence rule um, that uh, Vice President Pence refused to um, be alone with a female, uh, another woman um, without his wife present. And you can imagine in a workplace where mentoring is really important, where a lot of that mentoring might happen outside of the four walls of the office or even in somebody's office with the door closed, if male supervisors are afraid of those interactions with women, they're not going to mentor women. They're not going to promote women. They may not even hire women. It's just safer to hire people like them. You know, I was looking at uh, the Institute for Women's Policy Research uh, that found that at least one quarter of women experience sexual harassment at the work at the workplace. I'm wondering, you know, what do we know about men who are treated this way? Um, We don't know a lot about men who are treated this way. There have been some surveys that suggest that harassment of men is much more, is broader than we might suspect. Um, But uh, one of... 
there are real challenges um, to get at that kind of information. One of the challenges is that it really requires a broad climate survey, um, and uh, not a lot of employers do that. That's one of the recommendations, actually, of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is to engage in these climate surveys to, to try and measure the amount of harassment employees might experience. But also, I think it's really challenging for men to, one, recognize that what happened to them might be harassment, um, at least sexual harassment. Um, and, and two, to even report it in a, in a survey, but certainly not, uh, it has to be really bad, uh, generally speaking, for men to come forward um, and, uh, and even tell their employers what's happening to them. Because there's just such a stigma um, surrounding masculinity and uh, being subject to some kind of um, harassment. You know, I, I started the show off uh, listening to uh, Andrew Cuomo, that, that clip from his uh, recorded comments on Tuesday. And we think about in uh, the media these high-profile cases, these men who've been in power for some time. You know, these trainings really aren't relevant to them, right, because this behavior has been part of them for so long. And, and you know, is someone sitting down with Governor Cuomo uh, when he's in office to say, you know, these are the laws, this is how you should follow them? It doesn't seem like that's happening. <laughs> right. Well, and even if it's happening, men, there there's a phenomenon, and again, the EEOC uh, has talked about this, where um, in some workplaces, there will be one or two or five or 10 men who are sort of stars. Um, and even if they go through the harassment training, which they might not, they uh, it never really applies to them. It's never enforced against them. Um, they're never sort of required to follow the same rules as other people, um, and they're protected. Uh, and so, a lot of a, a lot of the stories that we've heard, especially in the tech world, um, involve those kinds of sort of superstar male um, uh, people who are. Uh, who just never, uh, never seem to have to follow the rules. Again, you're hearing Marsha McCormick here on Where We Live. She's an employment law professor at St. Louis University. As we talk about mandated sexual harassment prevention trainings uh, in Connecticut and other states, most employers are required to provide these trainings, but we wanted to find out what they actually accomplish. And as Marsha says, uh, the research shows they can be counterproductive. So what have you noticed at your workplace? Did they make a difference? We want to hear from you. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-W. NPR. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We'll be back after a short break. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. 
ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I thought a hug and putting my arm around a staff person while taking a picture was friendly, but she found it to be too forward. I kissed a woman on the cheek at a wedding, and I thought I was being nice, but she felt that it was too aggressive. I have slipped and called people honey, sweetheart, and darling. I meant it to be endearing, but women found it dated and offensive. I said on national TV to a doctor wearing PPE and giving me a COVID nasal swab, you make that gown look good. I was joking. Obviously, otherwise I wouldn't have said it on national TV. But she found it disrespectful. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. That's Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, for another 12 days. He announced his resignation after a 165-page investigation by the New York State Attorney, New York Attorney General, rather, concluding he sexually harassed 11 women He denies the women's allegations. Now, we're learning about laws that protect people in the workplace. And most states, like Connecticut, mandate sexual harassment prevention trainings. We're talking about these programs with my guest on Zoom, Marsha McCormick, professor of law at St. Louis University. Uh, She's a specialist in employment law. Uh, We wanted to hear from you as well if you've undergone these mandated sexual harassment training prevention programs what they've been like. Do you think they make a difference in your workplace? Uh, Laura's calling in from Guilford. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So what has been your experience with these trainings? Well, we just did a training about two months ago where we had to learn what was going to be offensive, basically, not just sexually harassment focused, but also ageism and other things like that and diversity and, and racial equity. We're doing a big diversity and equity push at work. However, the big focus on sexual harassment and they the training focused on levels of harassment from green all the way up to red and so now it's almost become comical in the workplace if somebody makes a comment will be like oh that's in the red and so it's it's become funny and i feel like it's kind of taken an emphasis off the importance of the training and some of the parts that i personally have experienced as a woman in the workplace And so it was just kind of an interesting way. And I think when you had spoken to the fact that, or your guest, sorry, that when you put these stereotypes out there, people pay more attention to them. I think that is so, so accurate. Mm. That's an interesting approach. Green to red, uh, Marsha McCormick. Yeah. <laughs> Laura, thank you for uh, describing that for us. Uh, Marsha, when I hear that, I think about, you know, some of the ways that uh, my children's elementary school teachers talk to them. You know, green is acceptable behavior and red, you might get sent to the principal's office. Yeah, that is pretty, uh, it is pretty similar. And I like, I, I feel some sympathy for the people who are designing this training and, the, you know, management and supervisors who probably mean well, but you're right, it really trivializes things to, um, to frame them that way uh, and does create an opportunity to, um, to make fun of the training itself, which leads to sort of making fun to 
taking it or making fun of taking it seriously when these things happen to you. When we think about the people who are harassing or bullying at the work workplace, uh, we probably already touched on this a little bit, but when we think about these mandatory trainings, you know, do they get the message that this behavior is okay or is it completely, you know, this is how they are and they'll just be careful about who they might be joking around with if it's, as they say, a joke? Right. And I think that's a really common strategy um, to uh, – to deploy when a person is, um, has, you know, been accused of, uh, or called on their behavior, um, as harassing uh, and governor Cuomo did it, you know, I was joking. I wouldn't have said this on national television if I wasn't joking. Um, uh, and that puts the burden then on the person who says, no, this was, you know, this was discriminatory behavior. Um, and the, the actor is like, well, I didn't mean it. You're just too sensitive, you know, really. Um, and so it trivializes the conduct. It makes it so they're not really responsible for it. And it, you know, sends the message to the, to the person who's subject to it, that there's something wrong with them. Um, there's a great line, uh, that is sort of used in these, in these circumstances. Um, and it's, it's a little offensive itself, but, uh, it's, repeated in the movie North Country, which I highly encourage people to watch if they want to watch a movie about harassment and the harm of it. Um, uh, and the, uh, the line is that when someone, uh, when a woman particularly accuses a man of sexual harassment and there's litigation, um, one of the defenses is called the nuts and sluts defense. Mm-hmm. Essentially, if um, uh, that she either imagined what happened, you know, or is overly sensitive, or she invited the conduct. Wow. Uh, Mary uh, called in just to share. Uh, she worked in architecture and, and engineering for many years. She was always outnumbered, and she was always seen as too young, too female, and now too old. And she remembers the sexual harassment training back in the 90s, and then she was harassed by colleagues for being female after that. So that speaks to the point that you raised, Marcia, that it, um, it doesn't generally cause any change in behavior, and it actually um, sometimes solidifies the stereotypes and the behaviors and uh, the, you know, the uncalled-for comments after the fact. Yeah, there's actually a lot of uh, psychological literature on that very effect um, in experimental and real life situations. I'm sorry that happened to you, uh, Mary, uh, who uh, wanted to share that with us. Uh, Let's talk about some of the tools for people um, who are not uh, harassers, but, um, you know, people that might see that kind of behavior or have experienced that. And when we think about these training programs, what are they learning in terms of how to report it or how to diffuse a scenario or something that's happening right in front of them? Well, so those are sort of two separate questions mm-hmm. that go to two separate goals that an employee or that the training might have. Um, and I'm going to talk about uh, the what they might do in the moment. Okay. So one of the things that that seems promising um, in the research on this issue um, is uh, something called bystander training. And it's something, it's, uh, it, it was originally sort of uh, created in the context of street harassment. Um, and the idea of bystander uh, intervention or bystander training is that you, you help people who are seeing something 
um, respond in the moment to stop what's going on and to sort of rescue the person who is the target of um, of the harassment. Um, and so, and it can be even something so small as pretending you know someone, interrupting to say, hey, how are you, to the person who's being harassed, um, or, or confronting the person who is the actor who's doing the harassment and telling them that, that what they're doing isn't okay. Um, and so one of the virtues of bystander, there are a number of them, but one of them is that it, like I said, it interrupts the conduct in the moment. It relieves the tension of what's happening to the person that they, uh, that they may be very uncomfortable with and not know how to react. Um, and it allows for, you know, a witness to, to sort of focus on the actor to, to help reinforce the message that what you just did really wasn't okay. Um, and it also uh, one of the things that happens when people stand up for themselves um, in the context of discrimination is that they are viewed um, negatively. Uh, even, even if we know what happened to them, uh, saying something about it, expressing discomfort, those kinds of things actually cause retaliation against those per that person and causes, not in a legal sense necessarily, but causes negative thoughts about that person. They're sort of viewed as a whiner. Um, and so, for example, even women who, who do this training are uh, to some extent retaliated against um, or resented uh, for standing up for diversity or any of those kinds of things. Um, and so when you don't have something at stake, but you're standing up for someone else, that doesn't happen. Um, and so it's more effective in that way as well. Reporting is a slightly different issue, um, only because that's part of sort of a legalistic structure that the employer has instituted um, that's part of its uh, attempt usually to prevent and keep a, uh, keep tabs on <laughs> any harassment and stop it before it gets out of control. Um, and that's usually uh, helping people know how they should report it. Um, it tends to be pretty formalistic and legalistic and, you know, there are identified people and there's a process um, and there are guarantees connected with that. Again, you're hearing Marsha McCormick here on Where We Live. She's an employment law professor at St. Louis University. As we talk more about mandated sexual harassment prevention trainings uh, in Connecticut and in other places, you can join us. We'd love to hear your experience and what your workplace culture is, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, Marsha, you talked about the people who are harassed and they end up reporting and then they are retaliated against uh, and they're fearful of uh, the outcome. Maybe that's why they don't step up to say something. And when we think about bystanders, that's also something on the minds of people at work is how how's management going to consider them or impact uh, their standing in the company if they also stand up and say this is wrong yeah there um it's it's a very valid concern and that's one of the reasons that very very few people who experience harassment actually do report it um uh and so uh one of the i mean there are uh, there's again a lot of research on this. Um, uh, if someone, uh, if a if a woman or a person of color um, uh, is uh, supports diversity generally, often that person can be penalized in performance reviews. I mean, so nothing, not even in the moment, not even a specific issue. Um, it can seem really risky, but when white men do things like that, they're taken more seriously. It's viewed as a positive. Um, 
when, but, but I think that the issues are slightly different when we're talking about reporting a particular thing you've seen in the moment um, involving someone else. Um, I, there isn't as much evidence of backlash or retaliation in those circumstances, uh, if it's, especially if it's a one-off kind of situation. Um, whereas a person talking about their own experience, um, coworkers resent it, supervisors resent it, um, and it sort of spills over into, into other aspects. Again, we'd love to hear from you as we talk about uh, mandated sexual harassment training prevention programs, the number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We're going to talk specifically about Connecticut law coming up in just a few minutes. But Marsha, I was thinking uh, to um, sexual assault and harassment in the military. And for so long, there was a push to have independent investigators, people not within the military system, to look at these cases. And I'm wondering when we think about, you know, how companies are structured, um, maybe, you know, are the HR people the best people to be handling this? So depending on, you know, again, just the structure and um, the trainings that uh, maybe even HR has taken. And I would assume it's probably cost prohibitive for companies to think about, you know, outside people handling these kinds of um, issues when they pop up versus internal uh, structure. Yeah, I think that that's right, that it is certainly more expensive. Um, one of the challenges, um, well, and the accountability is going to potentially look very different. Um, and that, too, might be a deterrent to a company using an outside investigator. I mean, the, the positives is that the process might look more legitimate. Um, the negative might be that the um, employer might not really want what that outside investigator right. is going to recommend to happen. Exactly. Uh, thank you, Marcia. I was just curious about that um, as we hear about even how the U.S. military is responding uh, to these allegations within its ranks. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, joining our conversation now is Deb McKenna, attorney and partner at Haber McKenna and Dinsmore, LLC. Deb, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Lucy. So you're based- Good morning, Marcia. Oh. Good morning. Uh, you're based in Connecticut. And so I've mentioned a few times since 2019, there was the Time's Up a law passed and signed into law in Connecticut uh, that uh, mandates sexual harassment prevention training, I think, for um, employers that have three or more uh, employees. So can you talk about that that expansion of the law and, and what that means exactly for companies? Sure. Um, so prior to 2019, the only folks who had to go through sexual harassment training under Connecticut law were folks who supervised, um, I think it was over 50 employees. And you only had to go through two hours of sexual harassment training once. Um, you know, so if you became a supervisor 10 years ago, that's maybe when you had your sexual harassment training and that was it. Um, with the expansion in the law, now all employees that employ, and the reason for the three or more employees um, is because our laws, our sexual harassment laws in Connecticut only cover employers who employ three or more employees. So it's linked to that. Um, but now if all employees have to go through um, sexual harassment training, it's still once, it's only two hours. And um, the employer is only required to provide periodic supplemental training, not less than once every 10 years. Mm. So that's 
how it's been expanded. And so you represent people who've been harassed or abused in the workplace, Deb? Yes, I do. My practice is devoted to advocating for the rights of workers in the workplace. Um, And so for the past 25 years, that's what I've devoted my legal work to. Um, I represent lots of folks who've experienced all sorts of of discrimination, but um, many who have experienced sexual harassment. Mm. Uh, we know uh, the Me Too movement helped really heighten awareness and help some people actually feel comfortable talking about what they've experienced. I'm wondering, do you hear from more uh, clients uh, in your line of work uh, that are, are comfortable stepping up and, you know, following through with, uh, you know, their claims that they've been treated wrongly? Um, so I do think that the Me Too movement certainly helped um, bring folks who were reluctant in the past forward with their claims, um, you know, in, in order to be able to bring a claim, a legal claim, um, you have to be willing to take certain steps and step forward and, and make it known that the harassment is unwelcome, that the conduct's unwelcome. Um, and as Marsha was talking about earlier, um, with regards to some of these legalistic requirements, um, our law does expect employees to use company complaint procedures um, as part of the process of complaining. You can join us at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Gracie's calling in from West Haven. Gracie, what's been your experience? Hi. um, Thank you for taking my call. Um, Back in like the late 80s, I used to work in a lumberyard, a grossness lumberyard that's no longer here. And, um, you know, as I worked up in the company, I ended up being head of customer service, which, you know, being a female working in that field in the first place is just, um, you know, there's all kinds of sexual harassment coming from all places. Um, And so I was the head cashier and people would ask me questions and I'd give them an answer and they would want me literally to go get some other man to come and answer it. Mm and mansplain it for them. Mm. Um, But with that, you know, we all had to wear name tags. And I started getting these harassing phone calls at work. People would ask for me by name and then would say, you know, I want to do X, Y, and Z to you. And just really nasty, um, disturbing comments that were made. And Eventually, I never, like any other job that I had after, after that, that I had to wear a name tag, I never put my name on it. I was like, I, will, I refuse to put my name on there. Um, but I'm just curious. As, I mean, nothing ever was done by the company. And I'm not even sure exactly what they could have done to deal with that kind of harassment at work coming from like random customers um, or not even customers, just random people calling, calling in and saying those kinds of things. And I mean, I feel like we've, we've, We've definitely made steps forward, but I feel like we're also stagnant. And some people are just, um, I wouldn't say dense. I think that they're just, because they might be guilty of some of that behavior, it's better to just brush it off as, you know, it's just who I am. You know, like Cuomo was saying, I've I've kissed people all my life. And just because you've done that all your life doesn't mean that it's right. (laughs) Exactly. And now you're being called out for it. 
So now you have to face it. Right. Gracie, thank you for calling in. I'm sorry that happened to you. Uh, Deb, did you want to respond to, to Gracie's point? You know, again, we can have all these trainings out there, but if people um, are uh, this way for so long, if they're raised this way, if they think this is pro- appropriate, are they ever going to get the message? Um, uh, thank you. And, and Gracie, I too, I'm sorry you had to experience that. Um, and, and first, before I um, answer your question, Lucy, just to Gracie's point about what an employer could do in that situation, um, an employer does have an obligation to provide you with a workplace that's free from harassment. So I don't know if Gracie had complained or not. But had she complained, there were steps that, as far as I would have argued, her employer could have done um, to ensure that she was not the person getting those phone calls, perhaps screening those phone calls, um, you know, taking a stronger stance about how they're going to allow their employees to be treated. Um, We do see that, particularly in workplaces, um, service type of workplaces, restaurants, for example, right, where you're working in a customer service field. Um, and, and it does not alleviate the employer's obligation to provide you as the, their employee with a workplace that's free from harassment. Um, as to the point about whether or not how you get, how do you get to someone who has harassed or, or looked at the world through this lens for 20 or 30 years, um, I, you know, I don't know that you're ever going to change that person's behavior. And so what, you know, that means that the onus is on the employer to take strong steps against, you know, and to ensure that they are not going to be an, an employer who tolerates this type of behavior. Um, but, you know, I do think we see a fair number of cases, right, where folks are, you have an older harasser. And, you know, I don't believe that people all of a sudden start becoming sexual harassers at age 50 or 60, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a learned behavior. I mean, they've gotten away with it for a long period of time. And often because, the employer themselves has turned a blind eye to it. Mm. You're hearing Deb McKenna again here on Where We Live. She's an attorney and partner at Haber McKenna and Dinsmore LLC. Marsha McCormick is also here, an employment law professor at St. Louis University. This is Where We Live. We're going to take a short break and we'll continue talking about sexual harassment and steps to change workplace culture and even the way people have been raised, as we heard from our guests and our caller. Maybe it starts when your your child is young, the appropriate way to respond to people and to be respectful of everyone. More after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. My guest today on the phone, Deb McKenna, attorney and partner at Haber, McKenna, and Dinsmore, LLC. On Zoom with us, Marsha McCormick, who's a professor of employment law at St. Louis University. Uh, Deb, I wanted to go back to you because we were talking about you know, some of the, the clients that you have, the types of complaints. And I'm wondering, when we look at uh, industry broadly, are there particular sectors where you see this kind of behavior persisting? Um, so I do. I think that you see it persisting in the restaurant industry. Um, you also see it persisting in more um, male-dominated, or traditionally, I should say, male-dominated fields like finance, 
um, you know, and, and to a certain extent in the medical field as well. Hmm. Um, you know, I think that those are places where there are, um, you know, still power imbalances um, are, are tend to be the areas where we see it the most. So walk us through how your cases typically start um, and when, uh, you know, you get involved. Sure. Um, So, you know, typically we, I get contacted by someone who um, has been experiencing some act in the workplace. Maybe it's a one, you know, maybe it's recently happened or maybe something has been happening over a period of months that finally leads them to reach out to a lawyer. Um, If they're still within the workplace, um, there's usually a number of steps that we recommend that they take um, before filing a complaint. Um, it goes back to um, being able to put them in the best position to challenge their, you know, to challenge the sexual harassment. And some of these steps can be somewhat difficult, um, but it is how our case law has developed. So, for example, um, in order to prove a case of sexual harassment, you first have to show the conduct at issue was unwelcome. Often that means telling the actual harasser um, to their face or, you know, through an email or text or conveying in some way that whatever the behavior is that's being engaged in is unwelcome. And that can be really daunting for folks. Um, But it's important that you do that because, you know, oftentimes the employer will turn around and, and make the arguments that we're hearing from even, you know, Andrew Cuomo, right? I was joking. I didn't realize that it was offensive. I didn't know this is how I've always been, right? And, it, and so by first conveying that that behavior is unwelcome, it takes any of that uncertainty out of that. Um, the other thing that we suggest that folks do is to document the harassment, um, make notes, email yourself, save any text messages. We have, I, I get a lot of calls now about sexual harassment involving text messaging. Um, and, you know, folks have a mistaken impression that those text messages live, that are, we can receive, you know, we can obtain them through a subpoena. Um, so sometimes they'll delete them. But it's important to save them no matter how offensive they might be. Back them up. That's important evidence, voicemails, emails, things like that. Um, then we also suggest that um, the person who's being harassed get a copy of the company's harassment policy. Um, because as Marsha was talking about earlier in the hour, Um, Our laws have set up certain structures where employees are expected to know the harassment policy and complain about the behavior. Um, And again, those are those can be difficult steps. Um, But, you know, it it is important to do that. And and in fact, if you have a company handbook that tells you how to how to complain about harassment, it's important that you follow it. So a lot of times my initial calls are giving guidance as to how to protect yourself best in that workplace. Once you've done that, um, you know, if the harassment is continuing or if your employer is not responding to your complaint, um, then you can, you know, consider taking your legal action. In Connecticut, you have 300 days to file a claim um, alleging sexual harassment against your employer. To start that process, you can file with the Connecticut Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities. Um, You could also choose to file with the EEOC, um, but my personal preference is to file with the CHRO because you get more um, information through that process. Um, For example, your employer will have to answer your complaint. You get a chance to comment on their answer as part of the process. Um, 
you have to go through one of these two administrative agencies before you can ever file your case in court. So, for example, you either have to go through the Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities or you have to go through the EEOC if you think that down the road you're going to sue your employer for sexual harassment. Mm. Um, the only caveat to that is if you are if you've experienced sexual assault, um, which unfortunately has, has seems to be an increasing number of the calls that we're dealing with involves some um, some form of sexual assault. Uh, sexual assault claims on their own can be brought in court, um, but it's still important to kind of go through this whole process yeah. with the commission. And Deb, we just have a couple of minutes left, but thank you for walking us through those steps. Uh, Marsha McCormick, you're still with us. Uh, we uh, heard from uh, the caller earlier about, uh, you know, what is really effective. And, you know, we're, we talk about uh, workplace culture and these prevention trainings in the workplace, but maybe these conversations need to happen when children are in school. What's your take? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, there's evidence, actually, that exactly the kind of uh, workplace harassment that we see um, is actually the kind of schoolyard and uh, school harassment that we see. Um, and one of the links, at least for uh, harassment with sexual content is the lack of standards for um, comprehensive sex education in this country. Um, the, you know, and not under, not learning it from a very young age about consent, what you can say no to, um, what other people can say no to um, is a big step. Well, it's been a really interesting conversation. Uh, thank you both. Again, Marsha McCormick is an employment law professor at St. Louis University. Thank you, Marsha, for your time today. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. And Deb McKenna, attorney and partner at Haber McKenna in Dinsmore. I'd like to say this is the last time we'll be doing a show on this topic, but we've done several over the last few years, and it is still relevant today. Deb, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Test Terrible produced today's show. Kat Pastor is our technical producer. And tomorrow we have this show coming up. How much would you pay to be the owner of a funny tweet? What about an animation of a flying cat whose body is a Pop-Tart? Tomorrow we dive into the world of NFTs, a way to own digital art that's taken the internet and the art world by storm. We'll also take a look at cryptocurrency. Are you crypto curious? I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.